All right, welcome everybody to tonight's uh, Zoom call. And uh, we'll be discussing a sermon tonight that was delivered by Joseph Smith on the doctrine of Christ, which is often quoted. So I thought it was appropriate to go ahead and, you know, go through the actual source material for that and see what we can glean and learn, learn from the words of Joseph Smith. Before I begin tonight, I thought I would share a little bit about my history, my story, and how I got here. About 20 years ago, I was a ward missionary in my ward, and we were doing some practice teaching, and we each paired off with a companion, and, you know, we're teaching teaching from the Book of Mormon just to practice, and I cracked open Mormon chapter eight, which I think I had just read and it had made an impact on me and started going through that with my companion. And it was super interesting because Moroni is the one that's, you know, writing these words and Moroni and his father Mormon watched the complete destruction of the Nephite empire, a once mighty righteous people completely obliterated because they turned their backs on God. And towards the end there, it was horrible, the wickedness that was among them. I mean, the Lord in his kindness and in his mercy gives us chance after chance after chance to repent and return unto him. So when you've gone too far and are in line for destruction, I mean, you're kind of the worst of the worst. And, you know, constant bloodshed, uh, constant war, the things they were doing to women and children, you know, the level of righteousness that they had that they turned their backs on. These are things that Moroni and Mormon witnessed. But then Moroni says, but you know what? I've seen you in your day and you're worse. Verse 35, behold, I speak unto you as if you were present and yet ye are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know you're doing. How can we be worse than that? Verse 27, this record will come in a day when the blood of the saints shall cry unto the Lord because of secret combinations and works of darkness. Yet shall come in a day when the power of God shall be denied. Churches are defiled, lifted up in the pride of their hearts. Even in a day when the leaders of the churches and the teachers shall rise in the pride of their hearts, even to the envying of them who belong to their churches. If you've just joined us, we're in Mormon chapter 8, and I'm reading about what Moroni said about our day. Verse 33, O ye wicked and perverse and stiff-necked people, why have you built up churches to get gain? Why have you transfigured the holy word of God? Down in verse 36 is where it gets very interesting. And I know that you do walk in the pride of your hearts, and there are none save a very few only who do not lift themselves up in the pride of their hearts. Okay, so he gave like this minuscule opportunity for there to be, you know, some hope that there's still some good people. None save few who don't walk in the pride of their hearts under wearing very fine apparel. I love very fine apparel. Every time the Nephites are doing good in the Book of Mormon, you turn the page, it says very fine apparel, and then they drop off the side of the cliff. I don't know how many times that shows up, but here it is again. 
in our day. And that very fine apparel leads unto envying, strifes, malice, persecutions, and all manner of iniquities. And your churches, yea, even every one have become polluted because of the pride of your hearts. Well, I wasn't ready to hear that. Your churches, yea, everyone have become polluted because of the pride of your hearts. It says everyone. But I wasn't ready to apply that scripture to me yet. 37. For behold, you do love money, your substance, your fine apparel, and the adorning of your churches more than you love the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. Does that apply to us? Does that apply to our church? You know, I was still 20 years ago saying, no, this is the world. This is other people. This isn't us. We're part of that few. And then verse 38 is the one that had the impact. Oh, you pollutions, you hypocrites, you teachers who sell yourselves for that which will canker. Why have you polluted the holy church of God? How do we escape out of that? Every church especially you that have polluted the Holy Church of God. And why? How did you do that? Why are you ashamed to take upon you the name of Christ? Why do you not think that greater is the value of an endless happiness than that misery which never dies because of the praise of the world? 20 years ago, Facebook wasn't even invented yet. And I already was thinking that, you know, we we do a lot of things just for praise. Then Facebook came along and monetized that ability, you know, It turned praise into a currency, and we took it to a whole new level. So I preached this little mini sermon to my companion, and his jaw kind of dropped. And he was just like, he was just like, is this this for real? Uh Uh-oh. Somebody needs to put their knee down. Hold on. Somebody, uh, you can do mute all, Justin. Yeah, I'm just not on that screen, but let me do it real quick. It's Dustin's kids. That's all right. Yeah, it's someone else's kids. It sounded like a Zayn back then. So I'm just putting your stuff in here at the moment. Where'd you guys go? There we go. All right. I think we got it. All right. So how do I get back into that? I was feeling pretty uh, heated up there. <laughs> so, so I taught that that was 20 years ago and it weighed on my mind. But so I graduated in psychology and was going to go on to be a psychologist, but that didn't work out. I went into business instead. But the reason why I went to psychology is because I was trying to figure myself out. How do, how do I work? What's in my mind? Why do I make the choices I do? And uh, psychology didn't really answer that for me, but I was always just curious about the state of people and about man and about, you know, what drives people and what motivates them. So over the past 20 years, you know, I've watched that in business. I've watched that in my personal life and I've seen it in the church. And in the church, I don't mean to, get too heavy on the people in the church because I love the people in the church, but I noticed it in myself and I noticed it in others that there was this praise of the world thing present as a motivator for why we were doing what we were doing, why we're showing up, 
why, you know, certain people would say yes to certain callings. But then when you ask to help, you know, will you come help set up chairs before church? No one would come. So it, it tended to me to look like the callings that, you know, you could get praise from people would do it because that was a motivator. But when there was no opportunity for praise, people weren't going to do that kind of thing. This has weighed upon me for years and years. This misery, which never dies, that's this ladder that we climb socially. You know, we try and jump the person ahead of us and we try and keep the person below us down so that they don't come and jump us on that ladder. And it's this social ladder indeed is a misery that never dies. And I want it out of it. I want it out of it. I wanted to have a pure heart. I wanted to be to church for the right reasons. I didn't want to judge everyone that I was setting with to see who am I cooler with or who's cooler than me and how do I associate with the cool people and stay away from the uncool people because they're hurting my reputation. I wanted out of that game and I tried and I couldn't find a way out of it. I couldn't find a way out of it with the people in my ward. They all seemed to be playing that same game. And I knew what this verse said, and I knew that he said it was every church, and there was very few that found a way out of this, but I didn't know the way out. And so for a time, I said, I can't beat it, so I'm going to join it, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to climb that ladder as high as I can, and I'm going to seek for the praise of the world because there's no way out of the praise of the world. And then maybe when I get to the top, I'll do good things with it and try and help other people. So about six months, I did that. And at the end of the six months, I ended up feeling worse than ever. It is a misery that never dies. Still, I cried out to the Lord, how do I escape? How do I get out of this ladder situation? And oddly enough, a few months earlier, I was reading in 3 Nephi when the Lord, you know, admonished us to study the book of Isaiah. And I've seen that many times, but it stuck out that time. I do. I need to study the book of Isaiah. But I didn't do it. And a couple months later, I made it to Mormon chapter 8 in my study. And in verse 23 of Mormon chapter 8, Moroni says, search the prophecies of Isaiah. This time, I couldn't deny it. It hit me so powerfully. And... You know, I've studied Isaiah before, not on a, you know, super deep level. And the only thing I really knew about Isaiah is I wasn't going to be able to understand him on my own. So I started reading books and I couldn't get enough of these books. And I was reading things in Isaiah and learning about things like the Davidic servant, like the king of Assyria and Babylon, and about the levels of progression of ascension. And the thing that stuck out the most to me in all of that is the way that you ascend in God's plan is by helping the person below you. It was the exact opposite of this game of praise that we play socially, where you're trying to beat the person ahead of you and keep the person below you down. It's the exact opposite. We look humbly to those who are above us that have light and knowledge to share, and we ascend by what we've learned, by reaching down to the person below us. Can you imagine what society would be like if we walk out there on a day-to-day basis and we're trying to help the people below us rather than climb the ladder above and keep them below? Wow, that began my journey. That verse began my journey because the Spirit made the invitation and I said I will do it. 
even though it's intimidating, I just said, yes, I will do it and started studying it. And the spirit was just opening my mind. Now that reach down to the person below you was in my brain. And that was in my brain when I came across the doctrine of Christ. And like all of you, there was something that just rang so true about the doctrine of Christ. And that's how it works with Christ. He ascended to a higher level than any of us can imagine. But he didn't say, I'm done. I'm God. I'm good. He did what he did so that he could reach back down and help us up. And then when we're converted to his word, that's the first thing you feel is you want to reach out to others, everyone that you can, and lift them up too. It is the exact opposite of what Moroni described as that misery that never dies. It is the true joy that comes from living the doctrine of Christ and sharing it with others. So tonight I want to go through that, not just from the scriptures, but from Joseph Smith. You all know I'm a big fan of the doctrine of Christ. And I'm a big fan of pointing out in the Book of Mormon, you know, where it is so that we can all recognize it when we read and it's all over the place. But I wanted to go tonight over how did Joseph Smith teach the doctrine of Christ? Because this particular sermon that he taught shows up again and again in the scriptures, in the footnotes. And so I began a study of the sermon itself. And it's beautiful. But let's start out by talking about the two comforters. So what is the doctrine of Christ? It's the promise of the first comforter and the second comforter. We offer up a broken heart and a contrite spirit. We seek the Lord in faith. We repent and we get baptized in water as a covenant with him that we will follow the Lord no matter what. If we do these things, he'll baptize us with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Then, if we are, we've entered the gate, and if we stay on the straight and narrow path, then comes the second comforter. We all understand this. But how do we teach that from the scriptures? Well, the two comforters starts in John chapter 14. Now, if you have your scriptures You'll want to look at the beginning. If you're on a phone, then you have the 2013 uh, version or older. But if you have a hard copy of scriptures and you look in the front under the copyright, it, it should, if it's before 2013, like the ones I have in front of me, say 1979. And I'll show you why in a second that's important to know which copyright version of the scriptures that you have now in this john chapter 14 in the king james version put out by the lds church you can see right here where it says the first and second comforters he promises the first and second comforters this is the only place in scripture that i can find the term second comforter Nowhere else I've seen that word second comforter. This is where it comes from. So whoever put together this chapter heading is the one that came up with that word. Now, what happens in this chapter is, you know, the Lord spends a lot of time with his disciples. And he is constantly reminding his disciples that he's not going to be with them forever. That he's going to be crucified. And he's going to go up back to Heavenly Father. He's not going to be with them forever. And the disciples were always like, no, 
this is good times. We love it. We This is going to last forever. We love, you know, listening and learning from you and experiencing things. And the Lord would say again and again, I'm not going to be here forever. And finally, in this chapter, a couple of them get it. And they're just like, what on earth are we going to do, Lord, without you? How are we going to teach the way that you teach? We don't know any of this stuff. You've been teaching it. We can't remember any of it. How are we going to teach like you teach and fulfill this mission that you're talking about? You're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to save all of us. And so when they finally get it, the Lord explains, don't worry. I'm going to send you the two comforters. The first comforter or the Holy Ghost, you know, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Don't worry. The Holy Ghost will teach you. And when you are called to go out and spread this message, just rely on the Spirit. And it will bring those things back to your mind that you need to say to help people. So we, we all understand that. But then there's the second comforter. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Now, what is that other comforter? If you have the version of the scriptures before 2013, you can look down in the foot, footnote for this comforter 16a, and you'll see that it says topical guide, Jesus Christ, second comforter, which is great because then you can go back into the topical guide and it describes a little bit about what that second comforter is, which is taken from the sermon that we're going to go over tonight. But for some reason, 2013 version and after it changed. If you go down into 16a, instead of saying Jesus Christ's second comforter, it now says Holy Ghost comforter. Now, I was reading about those changes. There's a whole article about why they made those changes, and most of it was clerical. You know, they were fixing words that meant something in the old days that doesn't mean the same thing today. You know, misspellings, things like that. But there's no indication of why they changed the doctrine of Christ, the most important promise of the two comforters, why they messed with that. Down in the footnotes, they didn't change the verses, but they changed those footnotes. Drives me crazy that that happened because now it throws people off of the path of what the second comforter really is. Now, interestingly, they didn't take the word second comforter out of the heading. So... If you read that, you assume that this chapter is going to be talking about the first and second comforter. But when you look in the footnotes, you'll never find second comforter in the newer version. Similarly, if you go to the topical guide under Jesus Christ's second comforter, it's still in there. If you look up Holy Ghost comforter, as a side note, you know, additional reference, it says Jesus Christ's second comforter. And if you go read those, you can learn what was always in there. But for some reason, after 2013, somebody took the trouble to change this from Jesus Christ to Holy Ghost. And now there are many people that argue both of those verses are referring to just the Holy Ghost, which couldn't be further from the truth. How do I know that? Let's look at the evidence. Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses 3 through 4. This is the go-to. Wherefore, now I send upon you another comforter, even upon you, my friends, that it may abide in your hearts, even the Holy Spirit of promise, 
which other comforters, the same that I promised unto my disciples as recorded in the testimony of John. You can see the reference right back to the verses we were just talking about. This comforter is the promise which I give unto you of eternal life, even the glory of the celestial kingdom. The Holy Spirit of promise is Jesus Christ. Why I constantly refer in the doctrine, you know, the doctrine of Christ as the eternal life is being representative of the second comforter is because of this verse. When you look in the Book of Mormon and the other scriptures and see eternal life, chances are it's describing in the doctrine of Christ what happens when you receive that second comforter. But to clarify this even further, let's go to the actual sermon from Joseph Smith. Now, this was reported in 1839 by Willard Richards. And I know there's a lot of you that are like, Willard Richards, all right, let's just delete this whole thing. I get it. But he was there. It was firsthand. He wrote it as Joseph was speaking it. Is it perfect? No. So we're going to have to use the spirit, you know, to fill in the blanks and to make sense of things that, you know, Willard maybe didn't get right. But I think there's enough truth there that matches the scriptures to say this is still a good sermon. So in this, he refers specifically to John chapter 14, verse 16. What is this other comforter? It is no more or less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you go to the topical guide under Jesus Christ's second comforter, that's what it says. What is this comforter? Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Joseph Smith is the one that said, this is what that verse is talking about. So why they changed it in the footnotes, you know, there's no way that was an accident. I don't know who did it. I don't know why they did it, but it was purposeful. And they're going against what Joseph Smith said that verse is referring to. So anyway, that's, that's the power of this sermon. If you want to read the whole thing, I have the whole thing in the notes tonight for the for this PowerPoint for the presentation tonight, and we're just going to break it down and go through it. And it starts off on the doctrines of faith. It says faith comes by hearing the word of God through the testimony of the servants of God. That testimony is always attended by the spirit of prophecy and revelation. There's so many things you can say about that. But that he starts his sermon on the doctrine of Christ about faith is, I find, very fitting. Now, what I'll do is I'll say, so this is the actual quote from the sermon. And here are some verses that that particular, you know, quote reminded me of. So in Doctrine and Covenants 46, but you are commanding all things. This is talking about the gifts of the spirit. And what I love about this particular section, there's three different places that describe the gifts of the Spirit in their entirety. And what I love about this one is it gives the reason for giving this gifts. And it says, you know, at the, at, at the end of verse 7 there, you know, not all revelations, not all prayers are from God. Some are from evil spirits or doctrines of devils. Some are the commandments of men. And you have to learn to be able to distinguish between the revelations that come from God, those that come from your own mind and other people, and those that come from these evil spirits. Wherefore, in verse or verse 8, Wherefore, beware lest ye are deceived, and that ye may not be deceived. Seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. These gifts are to help us to not be deceived. So yes, the ultimate fruit of the doctrine of Christ are the two comforters. 
but there's other evidences along the way that you are on the correct path. And those evidences are these gifts. You will see these gifts if you are on the correct path. Now, the very first gift that it mentions is to some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. Is that the first comforter or is that the second comforter? I don't know if uh, Tyler's on here tonight, but we went through it together and we prayed about it. And we're both feeling like that that was the first comforter. But whether it is the first comforter or the second comforter, what I find important to, you know, talking about this quote is verse 14. To others, it is given to believe on their words that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. That eternal life, they also may have eternal life is why I think 13 might have been talking about the second comforter. But again, for now, I believe it was the first comforter. But the point is, when you hear somebody talk about a true first comforter experience, and I've probably heard a hundred different people share their stories now. And usually the first time I hear it, if it's real, I'll know it because it comes with a kick to the heart with the spirit testifying that this is a real experience. And that is part of this gift is to hear someone else who's had that experience and it increases your desire and it increases your belief that maybe you can have it too. And that's what the word of God does. Faith comes by hearing the word of God through the testimony of the servants of God. Who are the servants? It's the ones who've experienced this fruit and then come back and lift down to help lift you up. And if they speak the word of God, which is their gift to be able to share their experience, then we, you know, get that belief that possibility that that can happen for us as well. So that was just one little part of this sermon that was triggering all those kinds of thoughts for me. I love it. Repentance. Now this one I wasn't originally going to comment on because I was going to leave it for the question and discussion period tonight. Because this is a provocative quote, and I've, I've posted this in our Facebook um, Doctrine of Christ group before to get feedback on it. But it says, repentance is a thing that cannot be trifled with every day. Daily transgression and daily repentance is not that which is pleasing in the sight of God. We come from a tradition where daily repentance is the norm. You know, each day we try a little bit more to be perfect on the commandment that we messed up today. Tomorrow we try a little bit harder. I mean, that's the way we were taught since the time we were children. And so this seems to fly in the face of that. Daily transgression and daily repentance is not that which is pleasing in the sight of God. What does that mean? Well, I have theories, and I'd like you to share yours as well. Maybe afterwards we continue to talk about it. But I found this interesting uh, section from Luke that I wanted to read. And it says, and by the way, this, is, this includes the Joseph Smith translation. So you won't find this if you look it up unless you look down on the footnotes. But Luke chapter 3, verse 8 through 14. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, 
Abraham is our father. We have kept the commandments of God, and none can inherit the promises but the children of Abraham. For I say that God is able of these stones to raise up the children of Abraham. So what does that say to me? That this is John the Baptist speaking, and people are coming to him. And John's saying, before, you know, you're going to get baptized, you need to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And they're like, what are you talking about? We're the children of Abraham. We've kept the commandments. And John's like, that isn't going to cut it. You think you're safe because you're of the children of Abraham? That means nothing. God can raise from these stones. He can raise up children unto Abraham. That doesn't mean anything. Verse 9, the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Doesn't matter if you're the child of Abraham. It doesn't even matter if you're keeping the commandments from, you know, the Ten Commandments. That you think by being a child of Abraham and keeping those that you're, you're just fine. And of course the people were like, well, if that's not it, if that's not the answer, you know, then what is? What shall we do? And John answered and said in verse 11, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath meat, let him do likewise. That's not a specific commandment that they were used to. Next, then came also the publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And John said, Exact no more than that which is appointed unto you. Then the soldiers came unto him and said, Well, what should we do? If it's not being a child of Abraham and keeping his commandments. And John said to them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely and be content with your wages. So what I love about this is how specific John is to each person that asked. And that is a type of how the Savior is. If we come to the Savior, he gives us our commandments. You know, what did the young, what did the young man seeking eternal life, ask the Savior. You know, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And the, and the Savior's like, well, you're not doing it. And he's like, what do you mean? I've been keeping the commandments my whole life. And the Lord said, okay, then sell everything, give it to the poor and come and follow me. That wasn't one of the commandments. And yet that's what the Lord told him to do. So back to this quote that Joseph Smith said, daily transgression and daily repentance is not that which is pleasing in the sight of God. What does that mean to me? Repentance is the same as being converted to Jesus Christ. That's what's important, is being converted to Jesus Christ. Not going down the list of your commandments each day and deciding if you're doing each one or not. That's trifling with it. What's more important is that you're converted to Jesus Christ. You know how to recognize his spirit and you can follow his commandments. And if that's something that every day you're going back and forth on, well, today I don't know if I'm going to be converted to Christ. Tomorrow I'll be converted to Christ. Today I'm converted to me. If that's the case, are you converted? Were you ever converted? I don't think so. To be converted to Christ? Yes, you can be converted to Christ and then fall off the path, realize that, and try and get back on the path. Yes, that happens, but it can't be a daily occurrence. Or you were never converted. That's the way I'm reading this particular quote. You know, especially after I read these verses from John the Baptist. So again, if you have a theory about it, you know, let's talk about it more in the discussion portion. Next, 
Baptism. Baptism is a holy ordinance preparatory to the reception of the Holy Ghost. It is the channel and key by which the Holy Ghost will be administered. So I copied exactly as John or as Willard Richards put it in his journal. That's why there's, you know, some weird misspellings and whatnot. The gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands cannot be received through the medium of any other principle than the principle of righteousness. For if the proposals are not complied with, it is of no use but withdrawals. So I've been having this discussion with um, quite a few people who believe that they received the Holy Ghost, baptism, fire, and the Holy Ghost when they were eight years old, when they were confirmed a member of the church after being baptized. And, you know, it's, it's a hard discussion to have with people. You know, I made that, I made that post on Facebook a couple of days ago. You can lie. You can lie to the bishop and still get baptized. You could put on a good face and act like you are, you know, the best person on the planet. You can pay him off. Uh, You can have a friend vouch for you to get you in. There's ways around being honest with him if he is the one that is the gatekeeper. And I'm just like, really? You think that baptism can work with a gatekeeper that you can fool? Look at verse 36 in uh, section 121. Really, behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are so much set upon the things of the world and aspire to the honors of men. They do not learn this one lesson, that the rights of the priesthood are inseparately connected with the powers of heaven. And the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled, but only upon the principles of righteousness. It doesn't matter if this person has supposed authority. If they baptize you regardless of what you've done, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. What counts is you in your heart. You have to be righteous. You can't fake it. And you can't fake it with a leader who's faking it. And there's only one person that can't be faked out. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he is the Holy Spirit of promise. That's why he is the keeper of the gate. You cannot pass him without personal righteousness by following his commands. And he knows and he will let you know when you're there. It's not just going and finding a guy in authority and having him doing it and thinking you're good. It doesn't work like that. Next, tongues. This is an interesting one. We won't spend a ton of time on it. Tongues were given for the purpose of preaching among those whose language is not understood, as on the day of Pentecost. It is not necessary for tongues to be taught to the church particularly. For any man that has the Holy Ghost can speak of the things of God in his own tongue, as well as to speak in another. For faith comes not by signs, but by hearing the word of God. So if you think that speaking tongues is going to help you know, build somebody's faith, Joseph would disagree with that. You know, it's the word of God that helps build faith. And if you're speaking in tongues and they don't understand those tongues, how are you going to build their faith? The sign of speaking in tongues is not going to do it. You have to speak the word of God in a way that they can hear and understand. Now, where did I get that understanding from? Paul. 1 Corinthians 14. I served my mission in Greece and I taught the gospel to the Athenians and to the Thessalonians. I went to Corinth, but there was no real Corinthians there to teach. 
but I understand the Greek people probably more than if you've never in, if you've never been there. So I understand Paul's sermons when he speaks to the Greeks and why he says what he says. And I'll tell you this: it is they they seek after gifts for praise of the world, and Paul has to constantly remind them that's not why you want that. <laughs> you want it to help other people. Quit seeking after the gifts to lift yourself. Seek the gifts to reach below and pull the people up. So, verse one: follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto man, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. If you speak in tongues, no one's going to understand you. But when you prophesy, prophesy, everyone else is edified by it. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. It's okay, verse 5, that you speak tongues. It's okay if you have that gift, but rather that you prophesy. For greater is he that prophesied than he that speak with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. It goes on. The point that Paul is trying to make when it comes to tongues, and I think the same thing as Joseph, is like, look, on the day of Pentecost, tongues was very valuable because there are many people there speaking all different languages, and when they received this gift, they were able to edify all. That is a good use of tongues. And Joseph is saying the same thing. You know, to be able to teach the doctrine of Christ to a person in their language, that's a good use of tongues. But just to speak it in a way that nobody else understands it, you know, that's between you and God, but it doesn't edify other people. Unless, of course, you can find somebody with the gift of being able to translate tongues, right? And now they can edify other people. So this was an interesting one for me to study. It was interesting to go through the process of reading through this quote and reading the scriptures about it and wondering if, you know, the gift of tongues is something I should or shouldn't seek after. So I don't know what the spirit is telling all of you, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Next. Okay. We're not going to go through this one. The resurrection of, you know, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment are necessary to preach among the first principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of the first four principles, can you imagine if we said the first six principles? Faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. <laughs> that would be awesome if we if we had those six principles. Because, you know, we've had other Zoom meetings on what those two things mean. But it's pretty high level, so we won't go through that tonight. Another time, though, perhaps. Okay. Doctrine of election. Now this is the real gist this is the meat of what, you know, I was hoping to get to tonight because we're talking about the two comforters. And I did not wish, I don't have the desire to explain the second comforter tonight in a way that makes you wonder, okay, did I have it or didn't I had it? Or, you know, somebody tells an experience and you're, you're like some teacher with a big red check mark saying, yes, that was, or no, that wasn't. That's not the point of going through this tonight. The point of going through this tonight is to increase your belief that it is possible. To increase your desire to seek after it. And when you hear the words of Joseph Smith, that's what it does for me. It makes me believe it's possible for me. And it makes me believe it's possible for anybody who seeks after it. 
And it gives me the desire to do so because he talks about all these amazing things that come along with that comforter. So let's read some of it. St. Paul exhorts us to make our calling and election sure. This is that sealing power spoken of by Paul in other places, in Ephesians, in whom you also trusted that after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, Jesus Christ, which keeper of the gate can't fool him, which is the earnest of our earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory, that we may be sealed up unto the day of redemption, this principle ought in its proper place to be taught. We ought to be teaching about the calling and election being made sure. For God hath not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the twelve, even the least saint, may know all things as fast as he or she is able to bear them. For the day must come when no man need say to his neighbor, Know ye the Lord, for for all shall know him who remain, from the least to the greatest. How is this to be done? It is to be done by the sealing power and the other comforter spoken of, which will be manifest by revelation. You know, there's a lot of doctrine packed in that statement. And for some reason, the one that's, spoke to me the most as I studied it this time around is it's not just for Joseph. It's for the 12 and it's for even the least saint can know these things as fast as they are able to bear them. You know, all of us that are on this call tonight are at different levels of being able to bear these truths. And one of the truths that you're going to have to get used to that might be uncomfortable at first is you are capable of receiving the second comforter just like anybody else. Let that sink in for a second. You are capable of understanding this doctrine and knowing these things for yourself. I'm saying this to myself to convince myself that seeking the second comforter is a good thing denying it and saying that is not for this life or that is only for the prophet and for the 12. That's rejecting the gift that the Lord offers us in his doctrine. Okay. Now Joseph goes through the first comforter. So he taught us about faith. He taught us about repentance. He taught us about baptism by water. And now he teaches us about the first comforter. There are two comforters spoken of. One is the Holy Ghost, the same is given on the day of Pentecost, and that all saints receive after faith, repentance, and baptism. This first comforter, or Holy Ghost, has no other effect than pure intelligence. Two verses came to mind. Back in John 14 that we started our discussion with, the Holy Ghost teaches you all things, brings all things to your remembrance. Those of you that worry as you're studying the gospel, how on earth can I possibly remember all of this? How am I ever going to go speak and teach the doctrine of Christ to somebody else when I barely can understand it myself? I've reviewed it hundreds of times and it's still not all quickly and I still don't remember it. And there's so many scriptures and there's so many cross references. Well, that's part of what this gift is. This effect of pure intelligence 
one of my favorite ways to hear people describe it is a download. They get a download of information when they receive the first comforter. They, you know, before that, when they're praying and they're trying to connect to heaven and receive revelation and they struggle mightily to get even a word and then wonder if it was right or not, right after you receive the Holy Ghost, whatever level you are, amplifies tenfold. You connect easier than you ever could before. You get this download of pure intelligence and the Holy Ghost is what will show you all things and teach you the peaceable things of the kingdom. Next, first comforter with the seed of Abraham. It is more powerful in expanding the mind, enlightening the understanding, and storing the intellect with present knowledge. Continuing on with this description of how you're at this ability, and then you have this step up in ability, you know, to have your mind expanded, to understand things that you didn't understand before. This is exactly what happened to Joseph when he received the first comforter. Suddenly he understood things that he couldn't understand before. And when he opened the scriptures, there was truths coming to him that he didn't understand before. That's one of the evidences of that someone has received the first comforter. Suddenly they get these downloads of pure intellect. Now, of a man who is of the literal seed of Abraham, that that one that is a Gentile, though, it may not have half as much visible effect upon the body. For as the Holy Ghost falls upon one of the literal seed of Abraham, it is calm and serene, and his whole soul and body are only exercised by the pure spirit of intelligence. But let's see what happens when it, with a Gentile. Wow, the effect of the Holy Ghost upon a Gentile is to purge out the old blood and make him actually the seed of Abraham. Interesting. You've probably heard that quote before. If you didn't know where it came from, it was Joseph Smith when he taught the doctrine of Christ. That man, that man that has none of the blood of Abraham naturally must have a new creation by the Holy Ghost. In such a case, there may be more of a powerful effect upon the body and visible to the eye than upon an Israelite. While the Israelite at first might be far more Gentile in pure intelligence. Okay. This is a scripture that's oft quoted from the Lord when he was talking about other sheep who are not part of the fold in Jerusalem. And he said, and they understood me not that I said, they shall hear my voice. And they understood me not that the Gentiles should not any time hear my voice, that I should not manifest myself unto them, save it were by the Holy Ghost. So a lot of people use that as an explanation to say, look, the Lord already said he wouldn't. We can't get the second comforter. He told the Gentiles, it's not going to happen. He'll only manifest them, himself to them through the Holy Ghost. Well, what Joseph explains is that when you, as a Gentile, receive the Holy Ghost, it burns the Gentile blood out of you and makes you blood Abraham, or blood Israel. And that is who the Lord can appear to that is part of the experience of receiving the first comforter and being redeemed is to prepare you to get on the path so that you can go and experience the Lord appearing to you personally. Don't let third Nephi 15, 23 dampen your desire to come unto the Lord. Now the next verse, second Nephi 31, 14. 
great chapter about the doctrine of Christ. Nephi says, but behold, my beloved brother, thus came the voice of the son unto me saying, after you have repented of your sins and witness unto the father, you're willing to keep my commandments by the baptism of water and have received the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost and can speak with a new tongue, even the tongue of angels. And after this should deny me, it would have been better for you that you had not known me. Name me one eight-year-old that you know that this verse applied to them when they were confirmed. Where they're eight years old, they receive the confirmation in the Holy Ghost, and then, I don't know, half of them fall away because they just did it because their family made them or they didn't know whether they were going to whatever. You think that that eight-year-old... it now falls under this level of curse, it would have been better for you that you had not known me? That goes against reason. Just being eight years old and getting dunked and having the hands laid on your head, it's nice, but it is not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, Jesus Christ. That's the one. When he lays his hands on your head or his authorized servant lays their hands on your head and it is done through him which he received that authorization from father then if you should turn from that yes it would be better for you to have not known them known him let's not put that on our children come on you know look at what we're talking about we're talking about this physical change that happens over these gentiles it's, a, it's the most powerful spiritual experience you'll have up to that point. You know, you can speak with the tongue of angels. You know, you get these downloads to connect with heaven. And I'm not saying it's impossible for an eight-year-old to receive the baptism of fire and Holy Ghost. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying when I was eight, that's not what happened. I wouldn't have been condemned after my experience. I didn't have these physical things come over me where my blood was purged out, where I could speak with the tongue of angels. I just didn't, okay? And why it's important to understand that is so that I can continue to go forward and saying, I'm going to seek the first comforter. I'm going to seek it. You know, and it is the Lord's timing and it is his gate. But I do think he finds it favorable when we let him know that it is our desire to receive that comforter. You know, and we let him know that verbally by entering a covenant with him to say, we'll offer up our broken heart and contrite spirit, Lord. We'll follow your commands. We will be baptized in water as a covenant with you that we will follow you. And when you do that, he'll tell you, he'll reveal to you what you need to do. He'll reveal those commandments to you that you need to follow. And that's conversion. That's conversion is when you will do that stuff. You'll seek it and you'll do it. It's hard in the beginning. It's hard, you know, especially if you're older. Because you have a lifetime of idols, personal idols that you've created. You have a lifetime of false traditions and false beliefs that are almost impenetrable to protect your way of life. And when you go to the Lord in the beginning, he'll tell you to break those things down. He'll say, you need to get rid of this idol. You need to change this false belief. You need to get rid of that, you know, 
what whatever you've been doing tradition that doesn't follow along with what his will would be. And that's difficult. But if you have the faith to do it and try it, not long after you're successful, you see why he asked you. You see why he asked you. You can say exactly that was an idol. And the more often that experience happens, you just begin to trust him. And then he can ask you to do harder things. And you're like, yeah, that's a hard one. But I trust you. Lord, I trust you. It always works out for the better. And so you can go with confidence. That's conversion. That's conversion. That's not something to be trifled with, with this daily going back and forth on whether you're on the Lord's side or not. Next, the other comforter. Now, Joseph never called it the second comforter in this sermon, or at least not as Willard recorded, but he calls it the other comforter, and he calls it the last comforter. And another, another, other, and last comforter. So the other comforter spoken of is a subject of great interest and perhaps understood by few in this generation. Well, isn't that the truth? After a person that has faith in Christ, repents of his sins, and is baptized for the remission of sins and receives the Holy Ghost, doctrine of Christ, receives the Holy Ghost by laying on of hands, which is the first comforter, then let him continue to humble himself before God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That's Nephi said the same thing. And living by every word of God, and the Lord will soon say unto him, Son, thou shalt be exalted. Not a lot of that word exalted in the scriptures. You know, what is that promise? Son, thou shalt be exalted. Well, again, let's go back a little bit. You know, you've done the best you can. You've offered a broken heart and contrite spirit. You've followed the Lord's words and he baptizes you with fire and the Holy Ghost. And in that baptism, he gives you an endowment of hope and charity. And why does he do that? Because you're going to need that. You're going to need that on the path that you're about to go on. And that path is straight and narrow. And I think that's a good reminder that it's even straight, more straight and narrow than before the gate. Now it is, you know how to hear the word. You know how to be guided by the spirit. And you've got to go with that and stay within what the spirit is telling you to do. Feasting on those words of Christ. Now, not everybody can do that. You know, some fall off that path, get back on, fall off, get back on. And I'm sure that's okay. Not okay in the sense that you should do that, but okay in the sense that the Lord has much mercy and is willing to forgive, especially if you're willing to get back on the path. He gives us so many opportunities that we just don't deserve. But the point is, is you got to stay on that path, following exactly what the Spirit says. You've practiced it before. Now it's the real deal, staying in that path. And a person who stays on that path, I don't know how long you have to do that before. And I certainly don't know what the Lord's going to ask you specifically to do. It's between you and him. Nobody knows that. The Lord knows your heart. He knows your path. He knows what you've agreed to before this life, to do in this life for him. He knows how to tell 
if you're going to be loyal to him or not in any situation. And when you prove that to him, when the Lord has thoroughly proved him and finds that this man is determined to serve him at all hazard, then the man will find his calling and election made sure. Then it will be his privilege to receive the other comforter, which the Lord hath promised the saints as recorded in John 14 in those verses, specifically verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may not abide with you, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. It's interesting there that the first word that Willard wrote was with, and then changed it to in. I will not leave you comfortless. Think about those disciples who were worried about the Lord leaving them, knowing the mission that they had. I will not leave you comfortless. And he says the same thing to all of us. I will come to you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father. And I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. If a man love me, he will keep my words. My father will love him and he will come unto him and make our abode with him. I mean, who wants the second comforter, right? (laughs) Who wants to have the Lord come and make his abode with you? Have your calling election made sure. And just to know You know that he finds you thoroughly proved for him to say, you know what? I know that you're going to serve me no matter what. Is there anything part of that experience better than that? To hear the words of the Lord say that. What is this other comforter? Now, what is this other comforter? It is no more or less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is the sum and substance of the whole matter, that when any man attains this last comforter, he will have the personage of Jesus Christ to attend him or appear unto him from time to time. That word or those words time to time, I find very interesting. We'll go through some of the second comforter ascension experiences here in a minute. But it, it appears to me that from what Joseph's saying, if Willard got this right, is the second comforter isn't one experience. It's multiple experiences. And you learn different things each time. And even he will manifest the Father unto him. Which does he do that the first time you come unto him? Or is that the second, third, fourth time? I don't know. And they will take up their abode with him. And the visions of the heavens will be opened unto him. And the Lord will teach him face to face. And he may have a perfect knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Man, we try to teach each other our mysteries don't we? And usually we mess it up <laughs> because it's hard to understand the mysteries when you haven't, you know, lived those mysteries yet. But how would you like to have the Lord explain those mysteries to you? How would you like to be able to ask him any question that you have? Well, you can do that with prayer, but it's hard. <laughs> face to face, having a conversation where you're, I mean, what would you even ask for? I think most people would say, Lord, what would you have me know? You guide me in this discussion. I want to know all of it. And indeed, that's part of this experience is being taught face to face by the Lord himself. 
This is the state and the place the ancient saints arrived when they had such glorious visions like Isaiah, Ezekiel, John upon the Isle of Patmos, St. Paul in the third heavens, and all the saints who held communion with the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. He goes on to talk about a few more things, the spirit of revelation, and he talks about evangelists who are patriarchs, but we won't go through that tonight. What I want to go through now is four ascension examples in the scriptures. First is Enoch, and you can find this in Moses chapter 7. Enoch was called up. He went up on the mount. This is a common thing. You go up to the mountain, not a mountain on earth, a mountain somewhere in the heavens. And he beheld the heavens open and he was clothed upon with glory. That's part of that going up experience is being clothed upon with glory so that when you stand before the Lord, it doesn't melt your face off. You know, you have to go through a baptism of fire or a transfiguration or something so that you can withstand his presence. Moses 7, 4. So Enoch was face to face with the Lord. There's that word, you know, that terminology that Joseph used to be taught face to face, to have a conversation face to face with the Lord. And he was shown the world for the space of many generations. This seems to be a commonality in these experiences where they're showed the vastness of the world and, and creation. And then this is the interesting one. Moses 6, 3, 4. The mountains shall flee before you and the rivers shall turn from their course and thou shalt abide in me and I in you. This is that ceiling power. That ceiling power that we talked about that Joseph mentioned earlier. Moses. Here's his experience. Same wording, caught up into an exceedingly high mountain, just like Enoch. That's how he described it. Saw God face to face, just like Enoch. The glory of God was upon Moses, just like Enoch, who was clothed upon with glory. Moses beheld the world and the ends thereof, just like Enoch. Then you know, Moses went up, and when he came back down to the earth, when he kind, kind of came to a little bit, Satan came tempting him. And Satan was like, look, worship me. And Moses was like, I was just in the presence of God and beheld his glory. Who are you? I'm not going to worship you. You have no glory. Which thing, of course, made Satan so angry, he went off into a rage. That was part of that experience. And I think it spooked Moses bad enough that he called back out to God and he went back into the God's glory again. And there Moses received the sealing power. Moses 125, many waters shall obey the command as if thou wert God. Interesting. Nephi. Nephi was caught away by the spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain. There's that high mountain again. Now, this is the one that might be controversial tonight. First Nephi 11, 11. He spake unto me as a man speaketh with one another. The Spirit of the Lord. I've always thought that was the Holy Ghost, and that was proof that the Holy Ghost, you know, was a, looked like a man and was a personage. But for some reason, when I was studying and putting this together, I said the Spirit of the Lord, I was, and then I was comparing it to Moses and Enoch's experience. I was like, whoa, was this... Was that the Lord? 
not the Holy Ghost, but the Lord, because Nephi was speaking face to face with the Lord. Perhaps that's something we can discuss tonight and pray about as a, as a, as a group is, was that the Holy Ghost or was that the Lord in that verse? But interestingly, we go on Nephi in that experience also beheld many nations of kingdom and kingdoms. And Nephi also received the sealing power. We truly can command in the name of Jesus and the very trees obey us or the mountains or the waves of the sea. And that was Jacob saying that. So both Jacob and Nephi, you know, received that power. So clearly Jacob had, Jacob had a powerful second comforter experience as well. And I find it interesting that Jacob compares these like me and Nephi and Isaiah have all had these. I don't know why he doesn't include his dad in that. I was wondering if his dad didn't, you know, make it, his dad had a powerful first comforter experience in the first chapter of the book. But did he have the second comfort? I don't know. But Jacob left him out of that, you know, saying that we have spoken face to face with the Lord for some reason. But the important point is Nephi had all of the same experiences that Moses and Enoch did. And now the last one that I want to go through is Jesus Christ himself. This one, let's turn to it. If you have your scriptures, it's very important to get this right. Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament. You know, Jesus' first comforter experience, being baptized with water and receiving the Holy Ghost, baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost with John in the previous verse you know, or in the previous chapter, Luke chapter three, and then we get to chapter four and it says in verse one, and Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan was led by the spirit into the wilderness. Verse two, and it says being 40 days tempted of the devil, look down in the Joseph Smith translation of verse two in chapter four of St. Luke and it says, and after 40 days, the devil came unto him to tempt him. So it wasn't the devil that, you know, was tempting him for the 40 days. It says, in those days, he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterwards hungered. And the devil said unto him, now is when the devil tempted him. If you be the son of God, command the stone that it be made bread. And the Lord in his characteristic, awesome answer, you know, said, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And this verse five is the biggest tragedy in the New Testament. And the devil taking him up onto a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Look down at the Joseph Smith translation of verse five of chapter four of St. Luke. And the spirit taketh him up into a high mountain, and he beheld all the kingdoms. What's the difference between the devil taking him up in the spirit? Is instead of this temptation, you know, power of the devil, this is an ascension experience. How do I know that? Because he goes to the high mountain, just like Nephi, just like Moses, just like Enoch. And what does he see while he's up there? He beheld all of the kingdoms, just like Nephi just like Moses, just like Enoch. How on earth somebody took the Lord's ascension experience and turned that into something with the devil breaks my heart. 
And now the same thing happened today. In John, when they changed that footnote, to take away the teachings about the second comforter. So when the Lord goes up to the high mountain and sees the kings of the world, then when he comes down from that, that's when the devil, you know, tempts him. And of course, the, the Lord withstood it. And then over in verse 9, and it says, And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. Who? People think that was Satan. But look down in verse 9. And the Spirit brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And then the devil came and tried to tempt him. So, compare this to Moses. So, Christ was led by the Spirit into the wilderness after his baptism of fire and Holy Ghost, and he fasted for 40 days. Then the Spirit took him up into the high mountain, and he beheld all the kingdoms. Comes back from that, and the devil tempts him. Then he goes up to the pinnacle of the temple, and the devil tempts him again. This is remarkably close to Moses' experience. And then in Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Sealing power is what I'm assuming that means. Where the mountains and the waves and the sea and the rivers all obey his command. Now, am I saying, you know, when those of us to, tonight who choose to continue to go on this path and get to the second comforter, is this going to be what your experience is? I don't know. I don't know. I'm looking forward to that experience myself. This is not to be a report card to say, oh, you've had it or, oh, you haven't had it. What this is meant to be, you know, is to increase your belief and your desire to believe that it's possible and then it can happen for you if you seek it. Now, I don't know where you are on the path right now. My guess, if you're here tonight, you're at a bare minimum at some level of conversion, meaning you've cried out to the Lord and said, I'll follow you. And I'll put everything on the altar. And I don't even know what that means. But I give you permission to start giving me those lessons. And giving me those experiences now. This is my desire. Is to come unto you, Lord, and to be redeemed. To follow your command. And then at some point, when he gets permission from Father, he will baptize you with fire and the Holy Ghost. And it will be amazing. And you'll receive a connection to heaven like you've never received before. And you'll be filled with charity and hope like you've never been filled before. And what does it say in Mormon chapter 8? You can keep that with you. You can keep that feeling and that connection with you by diligence unto prayer. Meaning, stay connected. Keep doing what the Lord tells you to do. Follow him. Feast on his word. Stay in that straight and narrow path. And then that day will come when you and I will see the Savior face to face.
you know, prepare your questions now. Prepare when he asks you, what do you desire? Have an answer for that, that you want to ask him. Maybe it's this year. Maybe it's in a couple of years. Maybe it's the last day of your life. I don't know. But what I do know is there's about to be a million years worth of experience and lessons jam-packed into a couple of years coming up. It is the single greatest opportunity to get to this point, to get to that second comforter. Do you stay true to the path? I love it. I love the doctrine of Christ. I love the scriptures that teach it. I love the prophet Joseph. Did he understand the doctrine of Christ? Oh, yeah, in a personal way. He doesn't describe it as a person who learned it from a book. He describes it to me as a person who experienced it. We can get there. We can get there. We've gone through a few hard things here and there to get to this point. You know, we had to give up a lot of traditions and beliefs. Keep going. It can be done. Don't take my word for it. I haven't received it. Take the Lord's word for it. It's his promise. It's his oath. Our part of it is to simply offer a broken heart and contrite spirit. And I say that in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen.